We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by regular commentator Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone from Taijong by equally regular commentator Donovan Smith. And great to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing the latest coronavirus news and the main news there is the government rollout of its 3 plus 4 quarantine policy. That's... Well, it got involved in some controversy. We'll also be talking about the Ministry of Foreign Affairs still hoping to secure observer status at this year's World Health Assembly. KMT Chairman Eric Jew postponing yet another planned visit to the United States and the Presidential Office this week getting rather irate over a report that appeared in the United Daily News newspaper that suggested that, well, some US Congress people visiting Taiwan were solely here for business purposes. But we'll begin with chaos on the rail lines this Sunday as members of the Taiwan Railway Labour Union will be taking strike action in protest over the government's plans to corporatise the Taiwan Railway's administration. Speaking early Tuesday morning, Transport Minister Wang Guotsai said that he was still hoping to head off the planned Labour Day strike and was also still hoping that the union would not call a blanket strike if it opted to take strike action and allow some of its members to report to work. Now that was prior to the start of the third round of negotiations and the optimism proved short-lived as later that same day the Transport Minister once again stood in front of reporters, this time to say that the negotiations ended without any agreement being reached between his office and the union. Now, according to Wong, he requested the rail union take into consideration the inconvenience that the strike would have on people travelling this coming Labour Day and said that he'd like to see at least some trains running, albeit on a much reduced schedule. However, the Transport Minister went on to say the union is refusing to budge on its position and a majority of its members will not be reporting for work this weekend. And speaking to reporters on Wednesday, the Transport Minister insisted that the government will not withdraw its draft Taiwan Railways Administration corporatisation bill from the legislature, but is willing to focus on areas of contention one issue at a time. Wang said while it's likely impossible for both sides to reach a complete consensus on the corporatisation proposal, his office understands that the process needs the participation of railways employees and that they, well, understanding issues can be solved, well, one at a time. He repeated that comment there. He also insisted that the differences of opinion between the government and the rail union in regards to the bill are not that great and he believes that they can be ironed out and he went on to say that the rail union's main grievance centres on the bill being sent to the legislative UN for review without prior consultations. Now the rail workers union has said that 13,000 of the railway administration's 16,000 employees have indicated they will be taking part in the strike and of course that will mean that virtually all train services island wide will be suspended. Now the union is also standing in its position that it wants the legislation withdrawn because of ongoing concerns about the, how the railway administration's debts will be handled and also concerns about compensation and retirement benefits for its members. The TRA and the Transport Ministry says they have contingency plans in place to deal with the lack of trains this Sunday and extra buses will be laid on to carry people who have to simply have to travel rather or simply choose to travel. So this, is, this has the possibility, Brian, of being a rather, rather large strike. That's right. And so this is quite significant in the history of the railway industry in Taiwan. I don't think uh, we've in recent memory seen a strike in the transportation industry that was actually 
as much workers uh, in terms of the uh, kind of industry at hand. For example, in past years, we've seen airline strikes from pilots and flight attendants and so forth. But that has not been to the point in which, for example, there would be no planes running on a specific day. And so this comes out of decades of uh, contention regarding this issue, regarding the corporatization of the Taiwan Railways administration. And so now this is exploding into the open uh, in, at this point in time. And it's interesting that it takes place during the COVID-19 pandemic, because in other times, I think we would see street protests and that sort of thing. I mean, with tens of thousands, I mean, more than 10,000 workers striking, that is enough people to really assemble and, and really make a show of force. And so despite that this is kind of impending, I kind of am a little surprised that there's not as much public discussion of the issue, probably because there hasn't been any kind of mass demonstration. And so suddenly now we'll have all these no, no trains on, on May 1st. Of course, Brian, uh, a local civic group released a poll saying most of the public do not support the strike. So this is also another interesting thing that's happened because since the uh, 2016 China Airlines strike among flight attendants, which was then a major strike in the airline industry in regards to the transportation industry as well, the public view, I think, has changed because one has seen increased willingness by unions to take direct action or strike. But the public is not always so happy because of the disruption to uh, the ability to get around and, and that kind of thing. And so the question for the union then is how to manage the perception of the public. And I think that particularly the Taiwan Railways administration will use anger against the union for conducting a strike to pressure it. Uh, for example, in past years, there was talk of organizing or uh, pushing through laws that would require advance notice of strikes, leveraging on the pac- public backlash against uh, when the transportation industry is affected because of strikes. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, when it comes down to a lot of this, what I find what I found most interesting, and I think it explains a lot of the pub public's apathy about it, is that really, it, when it comes down to it, what the strike. I think as far as the public is concerned, a lot of the question is, well, wait, why are they striking exactly? And because really all that it seems to be coming down to is that the union wants a seat at the table on drafting the legislation that will govern a new uh, privatized, well, <laughs> uh, privatized is a strong word, but a state-owned, turning it into a state-owned co- corporation. And the union's take on it is, of course, as you noted in the beginning, is they're concerned about payment of debts and this sort of thing. This doesn't really ring like your typical labor union um, kind of action. Normally, when you you hear about a labor union taking action, it's usually over things like wages, benefits, time off, these sorts of things. Whereas in this case, they're striking to have a seat at the table and they're not specifically addressing issues that you would normally associate with a labor union. So, the and they are talking about. I, I, it, it, this is a little bit unusual. They are talking about more of the business side and bringing up issues like you know the um, train fares haven't been raised in over twenty years and this sort of thing. So you know, I I, I, I think it's quite an interesting move that they want a a a seat at the table in drafting the legislation. But that's kind of hard to communicate to the public in a way that makes the public very sympathetic. Uh, because, again, it's it, the big question, I think, in the, in the public's mind, if they think about this at all, is, wait, why? And, and that they don't seem to be communicating that very well. So what I'm very interested to see, because obviously... Uh, the TRA is trying to stonewall them and keep them from getting involved in uh, you know, having a seat at the table, is whether or not this will actually succeed. And because this is a bill in the legislature, public opinion will matter significantly here. So the, the lawmakers who are involved in drafting this, 
they are if the they feel that their constituents aren't going to punish them over this then they may be inclined to just ignore the union in spite of the strike on the other hand if the strikers can get some support and or they feel the or the lawmakers feel that they will come under continued pressure going forward uh, for because of future strikes and this could backlash against them then they may may opt to bring them in into the negotiation. So I'm kind of curious to see how this plays out. And of course, Donovan, Brian mentioned the fact that now we've got rising domestic coronavirus cases and there's no street rallies, no protests for the Rail Labour Union to put their point out to the public. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to imagine the rallying cries, you know, 10,000 people in the streets with their fists raised saying, we want to include, we want to be included in the drafting of of a proposed law. Yeah, it's, yeah, um, but yeah, obviously the coronavirus makes it, makes a street protest kind of awkward and of course this kind of brings the interesting question of if you are the main transport hub for getting people around the country and you're you've got a dispersed workforce and you're protesting the very network that would get you to the protest in the first place and you'd have to take time off that very network how would they mobilize that you know i say <laughs> it's kind of hard when you shut down the railway lines to get people who work all over the country on the railway lines to a protest. So uh, there's also the logistical issue. So I think uh, what's interesting then is this reflects the weak position of the union because that is precisely what the demands are about. This is actually about benefits uh, in terms of when you do corporatize what is run as part of government currently, there's a fear from the employees of the Taiwan Railways Administration that they will lose the current benefits they have as public servants. The government claims that this will be maintained, but when you look at other uh, former parts of government that were then privatized to become state-owned enterprise, such as the Zhonghua Post, you still have labor contentions regarding the uh, differences between, for example, workers that joined before the corporatization and the and after. And the corporatization, even though it become a state-owned enterprise, it's been accused of becoming a form of de facto privatization. And so, for example, the railway workers have pointed to that in the past decades, the amount of workers has declined by half, even as there is more customers and they're made to carry out work on longer distances. And so the justification for the corporatization is using the train derailment that took place last year in Hualien in 2021, the claim that this become much more efficient, uh, much more safe. But then when you, what the workers are arguing then is that this is precisely the opposite. Actually, you'd be dec- declining the uh, benefits for workers, making them work more for less benefits, and this actually will become more dangerous to the uh, passengers. And so this includes railway staff or the drivers themselves. And so this this is a kind of long-standing contention. But I think what's interesting then is the union now is not strong enough to actually articulate that. It has to frame it in terms of this issue of transparency. And in that sense, then, the union itself also claims currently that it is not opposed to corporatization, but that it wants to see the table to kind of negotiate out what that would consist of. And so I think that actually is the weakness of the union at present. What's interesting is in previous cases, um, it, it, what they do, they tend, the pattern tends to be that the existing workers tend to keep their benefits, but new workers are brought in with much reduced yes, benefits. Yes, that's what took place in the Zhonghua Post. What, then, of course, what they do is they subtly try and push, you know, get, get the old workers. They don't fire them exactly, but they kind of push them to retire early and, and move them out that way. But in theory, they could, in spite of all their promises, they could drop their benefits. Uh, in, but again, because it's a state-owned entity, there are some political, uh, you know, it would be a state-owned entity, so there would be potential political backlash there. 
Um, but yeah, the models that have gone before them, I can see why they'd be nervous, especially considering the amount of debt that TRA has taken on. Of course, Brian, if the corporatisation plan could open the door for the Taiwan Railways Administration to hire people considered to be outsiders, like maybe a foreign railways expert to come and run segments of the company. Yeah, and that would not be surprising. Uh, for example, the uh, the corporization, the model that they tout is the JR, the Japan Railways. And so, for example, bringing in an expert to restructure the Taiwan Railways Administration becomes similar to that. And so oftentimes then the government in their rhetoric in the past decades has been claiming that this is to bring Taiwan in line with international standards. And so I could very easily see that happening. Uh, I think the uh, workers regarding the uh, Taiwan Railways Administration are concerned about that. And particularly, I, I think the uh, discourse in the public is is probably more on the side of the government in, in terms of that. I mean, people will say, well, corporization, that makes things more effective. Uh, you could frame it as part of pension reform, for example. And that, that reflects the uh, the fact that the union, although there's actually a very strong coherency, I guess, or cohesion among the workers themselves, as you can see from that, so many of the workers of the company are, are, are striking. Um, but then, then in terms of perceptions from the general public, that might not be as positive or not supportive of the workers. Moving on now, and in this week's coronavirus news, the Central Epidemic Command Centre rolled out its new 3 plus 4 quarantine policy on Tuesday, reducing the amount of time contacts of people confirmed to have tested positive for the coronavirus need to spend in quarantine. Now, known contacts of positive cases now only have to quarantine for three days and then closely monitor their health for the following four days. Now, the policy met with criticism from several local governments on day one, with the new Taipei city government being one of the most vocal there, and it proposed eliminating quarantine altogether for close contacts of positive cases as long as they test negative. But the Epidemic Command Centre said hold on their hoss, as it's still looking into that possibility, but it's currently believed that it's too soon to replace quarantine fully with simply rapid tests. However, now by the end of Tuesday, the Epidemic Command Centre had opted to further loosen quarantine rules for contacts of people confirmed to be positive with the virus, and it removed the need to take a second rapid test originally required on the third day of quarantine. And 24 hours later, contacts had been required to take two rapid tests, one on the day they were identified as a contact and another on the third day of quarantine. And by Wednesday morning, the second test was no longer necessary. And by Friday morning, the Epidemic Command Centre had said that people listed as contacts of confirmed cases will now be given three free rapid test kits instead of five during their seven-day isolation and self-initiated epidemic prevention period. Now, according to Centre spokesman Juanreng Sheng, under the revised plan, adults and university students will receive three free tests, while elementary and secondary school students will be given two. The government says it will not be distributing any free rapid tests for children under school age. So there, Brian, we, they rolled out the three plus four to much great delight of the government, seeing this is the way we're moving ahead. Unfortunately, it didn't quite go down well. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's uh, to be expected, given COVID, there'd be some political attention, particularly from the pan-blue local mayors that often have contested the Central Epidemic Command Center's policy. And those particularly being in New Taipei and Taipei, which have generally seen the most cases. And that is also currently the case with the current wave of cases in which it is still concentrated in Greater Taipei or in Northern Taiwan, though that will eventually spread elsewhere. Uh, and so regarding that, there will be those that claim it is too fast, those will be that claim that it is too slow. And one can see this kind of tension with, for example, as you mentioned, New type of mayor Hoyoi proposing to drop the quarantines altogether and just switch entirely to rapid testing. And so with Koenja, for example, then one now sees him claiming that, well, Taipei will consider a soft lockdown if uh, the hospital system is overwhelmed. And this is actually uh, kind of the opposite then, calling for escalating measures rather than re- re- relaxing them. But Ko previously was attacking the central government for not doing enough in terms of rapid testing. Uh, and so I think one will see this kind of push and pull back and forth. That's to be expected as we transition policies. And I think that as with the pandemic today, we'll see a lot of political infighting on that basis. 
Of course, Donovan, you have a, you have a KMT mayor in Taichung. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, Lu Xiaoyan has been largely supportive of the CECC and following their policies. Generally, the pattern here in Taichung has been uh, she would say, she, she would announce we'll be following what the CECC, CECC guidelines are, and we'll add a few little tweaks here and there, sort of above and beyond. Um, and that's about it. I, generally, Lu Xiaoyan has been pretty much behind the CECC on things. And because Taichung has, uh, up until <laughs> basically the last couple of weeks, uh, we until about two or three weeks ago, during the entire pandemic, we only had 201 cases in Taichung. Um, so Taichung really hadn't been hit by it very hard. And so really, with it kind of being a northern problem, uh, it kind of not, I think a lot of the attitude down down here was it's not our problem, but let's make sure it doesn't become our problem. And so Mayor Lou generally has been uh, her you know her pandemic uh, response has been quite popular with the public here because it it was seemingly at least effective. Now of course Taichung didn't you know doesn't have the doesn't have uh, the major airport and all of the things that make uh, Taoyuan Taoyuan to Taipei that stretch particularly risky. Uh, but, you know, again, there really wasn't, there hasn't been that much pushback from uh, Lou's government against the CCC. And Brian, do you think maybe the government and the Central Epidemic Command Centre should come out and make it clear that the situation is fluid, so to speak, so these guidelines and policies could change at a moment's notice? Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting then because there's the all tension between fluidity and uh, the overall trend of measures. And so the CC has uh, emphasized at times that, for example, the overall direction is still in terms of loosening measures, uh, but that they'll be considering adjustments. And so it's a little surprising for me, actually, when I saw Kovinger going out and claiming that, well, we could go back to lockdown, we should prepare for this, um, etc. Because I think that while there will be criticisms for of the CCC for maybe being too hasty to relax measures, there are very few people calling for going back to lockdown conditions. I think people do want to get uh, past this. What's interesting is that when cases take off in a place, that gives that mayor more political capital with which to attack the central government. And so one saw, for example, with Miali County Magistrate, uh, the Miali County Magistrate going after the central government when there were migrant worker clusters there. And so I think that, that's an interesting dynamic to watch going forward as it does spread out of northern Taiwan. Um, but I think that's to be seen going forward. And Donovan, do you think there's less public panic now than there was before because Taiwan's people have been viewing what's been happening in other countries? Well, there's definitely less panic. As for the exact reason, it's a little bit hard to say. But I, I think the I th- more, if I had to guess, I think more than anything, I, I, you know, the government reassurances that 99.86 or 68, I, I forget the exact number, but um, over 99% of all Omicron cases are mild or asymptomatic. Um, and I think people are tired uh, of the restrictions and the pandemic and the panic and the fear and the constantly talking about it and seeing Chen Shijong on the TV every day at 2 o'clock. And I, I think that everyone's kind of reached a point where this, this is, they feel like it's really not that dangerous and maybe a lot of this is it's time for it to go. I, and a, whether or not they're looking at overseas, really, I, I suppose it depends on what TV news channels they watch. <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, I think what's happening is is that indirectly they may be influenced by that because a lot of what the government here I think is looking at is what happened overseas 
and then applying those lessons. And people here are hearing those lessons via the government officials here locally, um, rather than I think that locals are looking directly at overseas. Yeah. But I think fundamentally, uh, the, the the tricky part here is that, you know, as Brian knows, this is a fluid situation. And kind of almost no matter what Chen Shijong and the CCC does, they're going to get hit politically, uh, you know, by pretty much everyone. I mean, everyone's going to have a political opinion, but also, as Brian noted, that there's, there's nobody really calling for going backwards. Um, the, the thing I, that, that strikes me is it feels a little bit like every day they're making up something new rather than they had this transition planned in advance. On the other hand, uh, you know, if the fact that they're changing things every day shows that they're adapting and are flexible. And there is definitely a tension between being having clear and understood rules on the one hand and also being flexible on the other hand, and there's quite a bit of tension going on here. Now, uh, how much... Uh, how much Chen Shijong's background plays into this or his education, I don't know. A lot of people forget that he's a political appointee. He's not a technocrat. He's actually a dentist by training with a long history in DPP politics. And he was chosen for the role initially because of his long and loyal support for the DPP. And at one point, they even put him as a, a party list candidate uh, back in 2005, if I recall. Um, so, you know, how much, but that, that being said, by this point, this, these number of years into the, into the pandemic, I'm sure he's quite knowledgeable now. He's gotten uh, two years of, uh, uh, hands-on education. So I guess he does probably know what he's talking about at this point. So I think it's quite funny because what I would expect normally is to see the Pan Blue Camp attacking numbers, claiming, well, there are actually more COVID cases than the Italian administration is claiming. They're fudging the numbers and so forth. But I have not actually seen that kind of thing. And so it is possible that the Pan Blue mayors or other politicians do realize that they can attack the Italian administration on these grounds. However, the overall trends will still be towards coexisting with COVID-19. And with regards to that, I always do find it quite funny that it's Ko Enja, who's a traumatologist, versus Chen Zhizhong, who's a dentist, and neither are epidemiologists. But then Ko Enja will often insists that he knows more as a medical expert. He really leans into that quite heavily as part of his image. And so then I think going forward then, it's uh, the question is, uh, will the public really accept this? And I think that in terms of the other examples that people are looking at, oftentimes it is Shanghai or Hong Kong. Uh, Pan Blue Media does obviously report on this much less, whereas Pan Green Media does report on this much more. But I do think people are watching what is going on here. People are quite afraid of lockdowns similar to Shanghai. Uh, people are afraid of that taking place in Taiwan. And I think that that is another deterrent, actually, from the Tsai administration adopting a lockdown or trying to return to the kind of format of a lockdown. It really does want to distinguish Taiwan from China there, A. And B, I think the public does not have the appetite for that at present. And that's where we have to leave it here on Taiwan this week. But we'll take a short break. And, of course, we'll be back after these rather important commercials.
Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and it's that time of year once again when the government is talking the initials WHA. But although talk of the World Health Assembly and Taiwan's participation therein have been more muted this year compared with previous years, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week did announce that it's still hoping to secure observer status at this year's event. Now, Ministry spokeswoman Joanne O told reporters that her office is working in conjunction with the Ministry of Health on the matter, and relevant preparations are already being made. O didn't go into any details, though, concerning what those preparations are, but she did stress that the government is also closely coordinating the matter with Taiwan's allies and like-minded countries in order to gain a greater international consensus on Taiwan's WHA observer status. Now, the 75th World Health Assembly will be taking place from May the 22nd through the 28th, and the United States of America on Wednesday, well, the House of Representatives there, rather, unanimously passed legislation calling on the State Department to submit a plan to help Taiwan regain its observer status at the WHA. Oh, and which of course means it gets the WHA observer seat back. Now, the House passed that bill with 425 yay votes to zero nay votes, meaning the bill is now being sent to the White House because it passed the Senate in August. The bill directs the Secretary of State to establish a strategy for obtaining observer status at the World Health Assembly for Taiwan, and when promoting the bill, Democratic Representative Jerry Connolly praised Taiwan's response to the coronavirus pandemic and added that it shared expertise and donated protective equipment internationally. He went on to say that Taiwan's leadership and contribution to global health security demonstrates why Taiwan ought to be part of the general conversation on public health. So, Brian, of course, WHA time, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs saying we're still going ahead with our hopes to get observer status and the United States of America passing yet, I'm gonna say, yet another bill, <laughs> yet another bill calling for Taiwan to be allowed to join. That's right. And so this has happened before, and this is one of these yearly stories that occurs every year. And in past years, we have seen stronger support for, from America for Taiwan joining the WHO, WHA as an observer. However, this has not yet realized anything. And so it's interesting because I think then compared to previous years, it is more muted because earlier on in the coronavirus pandemic, when Taiwan had, uh, for example, not underwent any lockdown, it was relatively free of COVID, Taiwan is trumpeting this as hard as it could playing up that it had remained COVID-free, that could teach the rest of the world how to deal with COVID, that had these strategies that had taken up, and so the rest of the world should learn from Taiwan uh, if only they let it in. That narrative was, I think, uh, much more compelling. And so then one had, for example, ads being taken out in major international newspapers, uh, other countries leaning in on this as well. This year, it's a little less uh, muted, I think, as the pandemic has gone on. You can't really sell this narrative anymore. Taiwan is right now trying to transition to coexisting with COVID-19, and the rest of the world is already kind of trying to move on from that. Um, But then it's interesting, then, that Taiwan does have the backing of the G7 countries this time around. Um, Yet, I think that that affects broader Western support for Taiwan, uh, but then whether that will lead to anything substantive is, is another question. Donovan. Um, yeah, and I think Brian's absolutely right about all of that. I, but I think what's changed this time around um, is with the Ukraine war, I, I think that the the narrative is shifting from the pandemic and Taiwan's ability to handle it and all of those things that Brian uh, pointed out um, <clears throat> to more of a broader pushback against authoritarianism, um, this growing us versus them uh, revival of uh, a quasi-Cold War. And Taiwan is on the side of the good guys. And you have these countries that, uh, you know, view, I think more and more countries are viewing this in that light and that um, Taiwan should be included uh, for reasons that actually don't have a whole lot to do with health. That's kind of almost 
secondary, I think, in, in, in to the symbolic uh, nature of getting Taiwan to participate again as an observer. Um, but uh, there's a few things that are interesting, and but we really don't know how this is going to play out because a lot of this goes down to the head of the WHO, Tedros, who is, I believe he's heading near the end of his term. Uh, the U.S. puts in, I believe it's roughly around 10 times more money into the WHO than China does, but Tedros is widely viewed as being uh, close to the, to the People's Republic. And now, does he want another term? Uh, how does the money that people put in and how much influence does that have on, on members of the organization? To, uh, and how much does Tedros want to stand up to the U.S. versus standing up to China? Uh, you know, at this, I really don't know what his primary motivations are, and I think that's what a lot of this comes down to. Is he going to send this letter or isn't he? He's going to be on pressure now from both sides of this divide, and a lot of it is, I think, going to come down to where he stands on it. Um, and we don't really know that. I, you know, I've read a little bit about that on his background and uh, his origins coming out of the political movement that he did in Ethiopia, and you know, but I don't really know uh, how that's how if or how that has any influence. So it's, it's really kind of hard to say. There's so much speculation, and there's got to be a lot of intense pressure on him at this point. Some commentators have noted that he's been taking a little bit of a stronger stance against China recently. Um, but again, you know, how, how much stronger, and if that is going to continue and carry over into uh, dealing with Taiwan, is, uh, it's, ever, it's just a lot of speculation at this point. And of course, Brian, one could argue it's a bit late to get an invitation now anyway. <laughs> That's true. And it's interesting, too, that I think Taiwan's response to trying to get to admission to the WHA has changed as time went on. I mean, during the co- in the past, for example, Chen Shijong would actually be sent as a representative. But now he's busy dealing with COVID here in Taiwan, and so that does not happen. Uh, but then I do think that it is true that the, the focus of attention has now shifted to Ukraine. And it's interesting to see Taiwan then using some of the same strategies that it tried to use during the COVID-19 uh, early stages of the pandemic to build ties with other countries regarding Ukraine. For example, sending supplies to Ukraine and using this to signal alignment with Western countries that are backing Ukraine, similar to how Taiwan was sending all these medical supplies everywhere during the early stages of the pandemic to tout its uh, ability to contribute to the fight against COVID-19 globally. Of course, Brian, lots of countries, the Americans, of course, passed a resolution calling for the WHA observer status for Taiwan. European countries have done this. Eastern and Western European countries have done this. But it doesn't seem to actually go anywhere. On, yeah, the, no. on the floor in Switzerland, when they have the big meeting, some ally of Taiwan brings up the word Taiwan. China loses its wig and says, it's not on the agenda. We can't talk about it. That's right. And so that's another question, too, that this backing does seem to become more consolidated in in past years, yet this has not allowed Taiwan to rejoin and administer the WHO. Uh, But I do think that one has this broader pushback in the UN now, and there'll be more contention or more polarized divisions, for example, expelling Russia from the uh, Human Rights Committee on the UN, or Council, if I recall correctly. And that now having taken place, that opens the door for potentially other disqualifications to take place on on similar or related grounds. And so I'm kind of curious then if this ends up pertaining to other parts of the UN regarding China, which is now framed as aligned with Russia. And as Donovan alluded to earlier, that we do have this kind of polarization between uh, quote-unquote democracies and those that are not between democracy and authoritarian countries. And so then this will become the point of contention, maybe. And I think this also sets the framing for maybe a future contention that occurs within WHO regarding Taiwan. 
And I think adding to, to what Brian was saying there is really what this all comes down to every year for the last few years is that the people setting the agenda don't include the issue of Taiwan on the agenda. Because for some years now, the the number of countries that might vote positively on Taiwan entering has been growing, but they've made sure that the, the issue doesn't actually get onto the agenda so that it can't be voted on. And so that's kind of what I was talking about before with Tedros and the decision makers at the very top, is they've been managing to block this from being talked about openly. And so that's why there's so much, this is really at this point kind of speculative, because you're dealing with a very small number of people whose motivations are kind of opaque. So at this point, we really, you know, I, I, I feel like making any predictions on what will happen is, is really very hard to do. And moving on from the WHA to the KMT, where the party's Department of International Affairs this week announced that Chairman Eric Dew has postponed his planned trip to the United States once again. Now, Dew was expected to head to the US early next month to oversee the opening of the KMT's new liaison office in Washington, D.C., and also to meet with government officials, lawmakers and think tank representatives there. Now, Alexander Huang, the head of said department, says that Dew's travel plans have been postponed due to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. But Huang also says the KMT remains in close contact with the United States and will soon finalise a new schedule. What the KMT official didn't say, though, was, well, maybe Eric Dew had decided not to go to America because, Brian, he was a bit busy here with the party's candidates for the November elections. That's right, and there's been infighting regarding this in the KMT. Uh, for example, Chu is challenged by Lo Zhiqiang, the Taipei City Councilor and Deputy Secretary General of the KMT, who wants to run for mayor of Taorin. And the Party Central and Chu have come out against this while... There are allegations of vote buying regarding the party's central committee elections uh, made by Taipei City Councilor Xu Xiaoxing, who is one of the rising stars in the KMT as a younger politician. Um, and this is also another point of contention. And so Zhu is dealing with infighting in his own party. He's increasingly coming under attack from other party heavyweights, including Hou Youyi, who is touted as a potential presidential candidate, uh, from Wayne Chang, Jiang Wanan. Uh, from others. And so this is something that he's having difficulty dealing with. And I think particularly if he did go to America and spend that time quarantining when he comes back, that might actually weaken his position in terms of this kind of uh, partisan infighting within the KMT at present. I think actually, particularly with the fighting blues, the deep blues so prominent in the party now, going to America at this juncture would be seen as an almost form of betrayal from Chu, who historically has faced a number of allegations in the KMT that sometimes range on the conspiratorial, including claims that he is backed by the CIA within the party and that he has American interests in mind in the party. And so I think he also has to be cautious of that in terms of his image within the party, particularly regarding a trip to America. And of course, Donovan, another thing the KMT or reports from within the KMT are saying, I should say, is that Jew also opted to postpone his trip to America because, of course, US President Joe Biden plans to visit Asia at the end of May and the KMT could have adjusted the itinerary in order to optimise the results of Chu's visit when he does go. Um, <laughs> I, I, I haven't actually heard that report. Um, so I can't really comment on that, but what I can, uh, I can add a little, little bit to what Brian was saying. Uh, Eric Chu, when he came in, it, when he came into power, he came in with 40-some-odd percent of the vote uh, when he was elected chair. So he was only elected with a plurality, so he doesn't really, it shows he, he doesn't have a lot of support. In fact, I believe that was the lowest winning margin of any uh, KMT chair candidate ever. There have been some conspiracy theories, both on both sides, suggesting he's he's deeper blue than he than he presents himself, and on the other hand, that he's less uh, that he's lighter blue than he 
presents himself as, and it really kind of depends on who you ask. And uh, but his this trip to the U.S., which is I, I've been finding this a particularly interesting story, because the office. They reopened the office after uh, the Ma administration shut the KMT office in Washington. And when Ma shut the KMT office, it was the KMT was riding high. They had U.S. government support. They were very popular here in Taiwan at the time. And I think they were feeling very, very confident in their ability to maintain power and also to maintain good relations with the U.S., but by the but things have changed so dramatically. The U.S. at this point, most politicians seem to be much more supportive of the DPP. And Johnny Jiang or Jiang Jitsen, when he was the KMT chair, he was the one who set the motion for the office to be set up. And then Eric Chu, when he came in, Julie the one he came in and tried to claim credit for it, which is an interesting twist. Um, but I think that a lot of it is he was trying he was trying to signal to um, Johnny Jung's supporters that he had their interests in mind. Meanwhile, he's under a lot of pressure on the other side, as, as Brian pointed out, from the the Fighting Blues and the Deep Blue uh, wing of the party. So he's got uh, you know again, as Brian summed up well, the, he's got a lot on his hands with Lord Zhejiang and all of the infighting going on. So he, he's just got too much on his plate. I just don't think he can leave. Yeah, and it does seem one of the reasons why he was able to take power is because those that were originally backing Johnny Chang, as Johnny Chang being the youngest KMT chair in history, threw their support behind Eric Chu instead because of the fact that he was facing a challenge from Zhang Yazhong, the deep blue candidate. And so I think that also points to some of the uh, splits within the party at present. But the idea of, of building ties with the U.S., uh, strengthening ties with the U.S., that is, uh, creating an office in Washington, D.C., this has been contested for such a long time. And so this idea sometimes will be introduced almost like a trial balloon. There's much little contention over it. And then one hears nothing of it for quite some time after. And this happens continuously. Uh, the KMT did surprise under the early uh, Johnny Chang uh, period by pushing for a resolution to establish diplomatic ties with with the U.S. under the framework of the ROC. And this was actually bipartisan. This was also endorsed by the DPP and the legislature. And it was kind of a surprising move. But then in terms of the ability to change course, that hasn't really panned out for the KMT. And I think that as tensions grow between the U.S. and China, it does not seem like the U.S. has the KMT, uh, particularly trusts the KMT at present, compared to the DPP. And I think particularly Eric Chu not going to Washington, that perhaps would further that perception. And before we go this week, the presidential office on Thursday issued a rather strongly worded statement criticising the United Daily News for a report in which the newspaper suggested that a recent visit to Taiwan by a US congressional delegation was, well, solely for business purposes. Now, according to the report, Senator Lindsey Graham forcefully talked to the government into buying commercial aircraft made by Boeing, but then China Airlines, well, apparently China Airlines reportedly said, well, we really don't want to pay for those aeroplanes. Now, Graham led the delegation to Taiwan in mid-April, during which time he held talks with President Tsai Ing-wen and other top government officials. Now the senator from South Carolina referenced those meetings a week later with a comment in which he reportedly said that he hopes Taiwan will announce that they're going to buy 24 787 wide-body jets made by Beijing and that apparently that package was worth 8 billion US dollars. Now the presidential office described the UDN's move and writing this article as basically being disrespectful to the US congressman that came over here because it said the UDN likened them to business people. So Brian we've of course seen this before with newspapers saying things about visits to Taiwan by certain people but the presidential office seems to have lost its wig over this one. 
That's right. And I think this is a particularly a stronger reaction because of the fact there are such allegations made against Mike Pompeo previously, uh, that he had come here because of speaker fees and, and so forth. And that also, that he was paid off by the Tide administration. And that also came from UDN. And so I think then the Tide administration is cautious of Pan Blue Media trying to propagate this narrative now of that whenever you have these diplomatic visits from the U.S., they're not actually signs of support. They're actually for business interests. Uh, and so it does seem like this is the narrative line that UDN is now leaning into and other Pan Blue Media may also follow through with this. And I think this actually, this accusation does have a lot of resonance among the Pan Blue camp. Uh, oftentimes when there are trade delegations, there are these accusations. Well, what are they really here for? What are they really here for from the Pan Blue camp? And then there's also the narrative then that the U.S. is only having its business interests in mind when it comes to its political relation to Taiwan. That is to say, for example, selling unwanted, unnecessary, and even dangerous weapons to Taiwan in the claim that this would be a defense against China. And so this is not a new narrative from the Pan Blue camp, but I think that one will see more attempts perhaps to lean to this more strongly as we see other diplomatic visits of this sort. And of course, Donovan, do you think these re- reports like this actually concern the U.S. side or they just they just ignore it because of the bias in certain media outlets? I, I, I really can't say. Uh, they, they're not going to comment on it publicly, and the people that I've talked to about it haven't brought it up privately. Uh, at this point, because the government is DPP and remains pan-green, I, I don't think they're going to be overly concerned, and they'd be wise not to get too concerned about every little uh every little thing that pops up in the any opposition party newspaper at any given point in another country uh, because that's just sort of part of the political interplay that goes on in in democracies and this i but i do think that it it adds to the sense uh what we were talking about before with the opening of the kmt washington office is that the KMT has lost a lot of support in Washington, and they've generally tended to now lean much more toward the DPP, where it was the opposite in 2008. Um, So I I think all that it will do uh, as far as U.S.-Taiwan relations is that the U.S. will continue to uh, it'll add a little bit more to the sense that the KMT or the Pan Blue side is less reliable uh, as a, you know, as a friend to the United States than the Pan Green side. I think it's true because the fact, particularly regarding, for example, the referendum on U.S. pork and the fact that KMT has continually raised the issue of U.S. pork and beef. And so this is something that the U.S. would be upset about regarding the Pan Blue camp. I think what's also interesting then is that there has been a pattern in which, for example, the U.S. is, is actually uh, cautious of when there's too much discussion of trade. Uh, for example, when Keith Kroc came uh, under the Trump administration, the, when the time administration was trumpeting this as for trade talks, eventually because that, I mean, there, there are some view that uh, some views of that that incident that because Trump uh, the time machine trumped it too loudly, the purpose of that visit was then changed to commemorating Li Donghui who had just passed away, uh, and so it is actually true that the U.S. view on Taiwan can shift or the moves that it takes does shift because of how these events are framed. But then I do think that when it comes from the Pan Blue camp, there might be less concern there from the U.S. Uh, yeah, I mean the the I mean the thing that, the thing is the, this kind of delegation. Part of their remit is usually to help improve trade ties. I mean, that is, that is a big part of interna- U.S. international diplomacy. Has al- it has always been uh, and, there's, and always will be an element of promoting trade ties and business within it. That is that's absolutely normal to be expected. You know it's going to happen. So for the 
you know, outlets like UDN to jump up and down and try and make the sound like it, it's sinister or unusual is kind of silly at this point. It's, and it's just going to keep happening because the fact of the matter is they're both right and it's a so what at the same time. And on So What, we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And great to be back. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.